Hello, and welcome back to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr, and we're back. We at True Media have been wrapped up in other projects for several months, and now we're relaunching the podcast here in 2022. We even have a producer on board in Sergio de la Espriella. One of the things True Media has been doing over the last year is creating a college baseball analytics site for Division One teams, and we've learned a lot about, I've learned a lot about what data college baseball teams have and how they use it, and we wanted to share that with everyone else with the college baseball season kicking off in about a month. So our first guest is Arizona baseball head coach Chip Hale. Chip won a national title as a player with Arizona back in 1986, played seven years in the major leagues, and then spent 15 years as a major league coach and manager. He won a World Series as the Nationals bench coach in 2019, and then took over the Arizona baseball program last summer. Chip and I will talk about the evolution of data availability over the course of his playing and coaching career, what information college teams have access to, what college kids expect from data and how they use it, how he balances stats and the eye test when making in-game decisions using data in defensive positioning alignments, keys to communicating data with players and communicating with them overall, and managing a couple innings in the 2019 World Series. Then Sergio will join me to react and wrap things up. Without further ado, here's the Expected Value Conversation with Arizona head baseball coach Chip Hale. Expected value by Chip Hale, head coach of the Arizona Wildcats baseball team. Coach Hale, welcome to the show. Let's start. I want to go all the way back to your playing days, just to kind of show how much things have changed data-wise, especially in 30 years. You played at Arizona. We're talking the mid-late 80s. What sort of, I'm very curious, what sort of stats or information did you have access to, whether it's yourself, your opponents? What was even there, you know, 30 plus years ago? Yeah, well, thank you guys for having me, first off. And um yeah, there wasn't much. I mean, we just, I know scouting wise, uh, our coaches uh, used to get information just from different scouts and people they had in different cities that we played in our, our league. Back then it was the six pack of the Pac-10 conference. So um, yeah, we just, we we went on the, the basic numbers, average. Uh, I don't even think we talked about slug or anything like that. Uh, we just knew sort of, you know, we're, we played people by what the, the, I think people probably, you know, did the spray charts by putting lines on a piece of paper and sent it to coach, you know, when they watched them on a weekend series, there definitely was not too much that we had to go on our own stats. Our coaches were big back then on like hard hit percentage, you know, and that, that we did like a well hit average. That was our, that was all they ever kept for the fall program and sort of decide if we were good enough to play or who was going to be the starters. Uh, we never saw a real average. It was just a hard, hard hit average. So as you progress through the minors, eventually to the majors, how did just as a player, how did that grow? Because we're talking into the 90s. So how did you know, just kind of the beginning of in my head, at least when some of those numbers started to change or become available? What changed as you uh, made your way through the minors and majors? Yeah, there wasn't a whole lot. We didn't have um, we didn't have any any video to look at or any really just just a stat pack we get every day in a minor league clubhouse. And, and, and again, I mean, average was such a big deal. You know, I won the batting title in the Midwest League and it was like every day people would open that thing up to see who was ahead and how many points you needed to get to beat this guy or that guy. And then of course, home runs and runs batted in and stolen bases. And those are just none of these things that we see today were really valued or even looked at. 
Yeah. So then as you transition to coaching and managing in minors into the majors, now in college, so now you're the one making these decisions. As we get into the 2000s, how did what was available start to change? Before we get to the StatCast era, just over the, the, that decade or so, what else started to change? Yeah, I just think that certain things started to become more valuable to, to front offices and making decisions on on who was going to be on a team and how we're going to draft. I mean, you think back to the A's and um, they started to really value on base percentage. And that was back in the day when everybody was trying to get bigger and stronger and on, um, unfortunately in the, some of the wrong ways. When I was playing and, and when I first started coaching, we didn't realize, to be frank with you, power was so important, you know, and driving the ball to the ballpark. And then all of a sudden, here we go, and teams are worried about getting on base. And I said, well, where was that statistic when I was playing? You know, I, <laughs> on base percentage would have been huge. I never struck out when I played. So it, it just is, is really amazing. And the different things that you see valued um, and how they use them is, is pretty cool. And so then as you became a manager and a bench coach, that's right when the stat cast era, we'll just call it, really dawned in MLB over the last five, six years. There's so much there from a data standpoint. How did that affect what you what you did and what you could do? Well, I think as, especially when I went, you know, I was coaching third with, with the uh, Diamondbacks and then the Mets, and I was doing most of the, the positioning of, of people. But when I got to be the bench coach and, and really realized with Bob Melvin, and with Billy Bean and with David Forrest and uh, Far- Farhan Zaidi, just w- how they valued these numbers and how they could sort of blend them together to come up with a number on each player. And quite frankly, I never had thought this was ever happen, but there were times where we were stumped on who to play. We would go to the number that, that our people had kind of put thrown together through all those different numbers and the StatCast stuff. And whoever was higher, we would we would play that day if we were ever stumped. So, I mean, did I ever think that would happen? You know, when I was coming up college in the minor leagues? No, but it was 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 genius and would give us kind of an edge against other teams. I always felt. Can you say any of the things that went into something like that? You don't know what the number is, but what would go into make a decision if it's that close? It, it was something that the A's and I think the Dodge, there's like four or five teams have the right to this. They pay for it. And this guy who does it in the group, they they blend all this stuff together and they basically just boil it down to each guy has a number against this pitcher. And so get into like match up something where whatever the pitcher is a sinker ball pitcher and this guy hits those well, stuff like that would go into it. You yeah, think? I think all that stuff would go into it. Yeah, I think. And, and that was something when I was a player, I'll, I'll give you a quick story. When I was with the Minnesota Twins and I was a bench player, I'd come off the bench and hit. And I was always really impressed by how Tom Kelly would run a game using the bullpen, who he started in different games as as hitters. And one time I said, you know, why don't you play Roberto Kelly more? This guy's hitting 365, man. He's killing it. And he said, well, what does Roberto Kelly do well? Or he goes, what did Roberto Kelly lead lead the National League in last year when he wasn't with us? I said, I have no idea. He said, in uh, catcher's interference. And I said, oh, okay. And he goes, you know what that means? And I'm like, not really at the time. And he said, well, it means his bat path goes like this. He goes down. And so he can, he really kills low pitches. He doesn't handle the high pitch. So he would play him against whether it was a right or left-handed pitcher, a sinker ball guy, or a guy that primarily pitched low in the zone. So I always thought about that back now when we get those numbers and we get all the different things we can get from these great, uh, like true media and stuff we can get. 
I always think back to Tom, like this guy was a genius. You know, he before this stuff was available, you know, he sort of knew these things. And, and that's how we kind of learned as a, and that when I started managing, that's what I started thinking about. I would look at guys take BP and you always wanted to throw BP to everybody and throw it up or down or out or in and see what they could handle and how their bat you know, path was. And now we have numbers that can tell us that. And I think it works really well when teams start thinking about drafting guys. Yeah, you mentioned the defensive positioning. I know you worked on that a lot, uh, especially in the majors. What What is that process like as you got more and more data available? What's kind of the daily approach as you figure out how you're going to position different opponents? Right. Well, it just started. I mean, I did it when I was managing AAA. I would I was the guy that created my own little sheets for every player uh, in the Pacific Coast League. And then I would r- do the line with a ruler, a different color, all these things during the game. And then if a guy got called up that was going to play against the Diamondbacks, I would uh, fax <laughs> that sheet up to the to the um, bench coach who would then have something on that player who, who was coming up to the big leagues. And that's basically how the whole positioning thing started was you started looking at all these spray charts that you're putting together. And then I was doing it at the big league level. And I remember getting to the Mets. You know, I had all these books and I was, you know, all the different, you know, the, uh, it was, I think the bat system had some sort of spray charts and I was printing them out. And then, uh, Mike Pelfrey was a pitcher for us with, with New York. And he's like, you know, Chip, I, I don't, I give a lot of ground balls up down the line. It kind of struck me at the time, like, you know what? I've never looked at our pitcher spray chart. So then it started to be a blend of kind of what our pitchers gave up and what the hitter hit. And we kind of put them together. And then I think that's what these all these teams have now created these models. I know when I went to Oakland, they had created a model, and we they really wanted us to use that model. So I sort of it took a lot of work out of my hands. And then uh, in New York or um, with the Washington Nationals, uh, they were creating one and in Detroit. They had created one before I had left. So it's just amazing the growth of all this stuff, and everybody's sort of trying to you know top each other. Yeah, we have these models that yeah spit out here's where you position to to maximize the outs against a guy from a coaching standpoint i know it's not as simple as put the guys there like what else goes into it like aside from where the batter generally hits the ball what else are you looking at to decide where to position those defenders well yeah that, i mean like i said you you do really need to look at how, what your pitcher's tendencies are um we for years we looked at just the hitter's tendency now we had like i said we blended the two you have to look at what your what your guys are capable of physically we're doing that right now at the college level just saying hey it's great to play this position you know and, and move him into the hole or shift these guys you know maybe we don't need to if this guy's that good of an athlete he can get around what i would do and that's the thing i re- really like about true media is i can look at a spray chart on true media and i can click on the dot and watch the play. So there might be a bunch of balls. Let's say we're playing the um, shortstop on the shortstop side of second base for a left-handed hitter. It, but he's got some balls, you know, a bunch of balls on the second base side. But if I if I click on all those balls, they're mostly soft hit balls where, where he's playing with his physical ability, he can get over there and make those plays. So he's good. He can almost, you can almost hedge against two different spots on the field. So those are things we started to look at more and more. At college, you have a lot smaller sample size, fewer games, players cycle through faster, et cetera. How do you deal with those small sample size when you're thinking about the shifts and maybe you only have... 20 30 40 balls of data from the previous season or something yeah really in in in, at the big league level with that small data you probably wouldn't do it unless you you know unless the one thing i we think about here and i've got some some guys who've done pro ball for a while and a bunch of you know guys college coaches i think the mental part of it something too you know if you're going to throw a shift on a guy see see how he reacts mentally maybe you can mess him up that way especially the younger player 
Let's say it's like throwing a zone defense out in basketball for a possession or two just to exactly. get their heads a little bit. So I'm curious, now that you're back in the college game, you're at your alma mater, I'll speak for me. As a general sports fan, you know, I have a pretty decent sense, I think, of what MLB teams are doing and what data they have from kind of an analytics perspective. I'm not as familiar with the college level. Like what so what sort of information or tools do you have access to at at the you know the high end of D1? Pretty much everything. Uh, now we, you know, we just got with with uh, True Media, but all the different analytical things that you can think of, we pretty much have. It's amazing, and um, and more coming. So we're talking like the, there's in game. You mentioned the TrackMan synergy data. That's all there. You're, you're doing things in whatever bullpen sessions or or non game situations too. We used Edgetronic camera, you know. We and we just got a brand new one uh, over the break. Pretty much anything you can t- you if you come up with something, see if we have it. Ask yeah, so the, the the trickle down is there, I guess. Yeah, is, it's, is all it's all there, and, and you know there. what, guys, yeah. the kids use them in high school, and if you don't have them, it's really it's it, it hurts you in the recruiting side of it. They ask us that uh, most most schools are getting labs now, pitching labs. You know, everything we do is outdoors. Our, we have a beautiful hitting facility that uh, Terry Francona donated all the money for. Basically, we've put one cage is 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 going to be more of a lab for everything. So kids are coming in and they're already as teenagers looking for data or the ability to analyze things or that, all that know, next level type of access yes, to that. And, and, to, and to the point, um, and that's probably an issue, I think, because at the, at the nice thing about pro balls, you have so many analysts and so many people that know more than you know, and, and I know that they can kind of dummy it down for the guys and what they need and look at it and, and decipher it. I think a lot of these guys don't really know what to look at. I can tell you this. We, we play our fall games. We played them all fall. And on our scoreboard, we had all the track mandate all the time. And you see guys like, oh, don't do that. And I'm like, you know what? These kids, they want it. And, and you know, we have it during back, batting practice. We'll, we'll have it on and, and they can see their exit velocity. You know what? That's just, you know, I can be old school and say, we're not going to talk about this. You know, I, I want ground balls. And, but this is just not... You're not going to jive with any of these guys that want to be big league players. It's just, it's just not what what kids do anymore. So, what are the keys in communicating data in general to players? Because you know, obviously, there's small sample sizes. What's important as you're trying to pull the information from the data and communicate that to players who may or may not be familiar with uh, some of the different information? Well, I think you have to know the player. It's just it, it, this business, and as as you guys know, whether you're doing what you're doing or what I'm, you know, I'm coaching kids. It's about knowing the the capacity of each kid and what they can handle and what's good for them. We have some guys that basically every swing or every pitch they throw, they want to look back and look at all, you know, the spin rate, the vertical break, the exit velocity, just re- having them realize that you're not going to get your A1 swing or your A1 pitch off every time. So you can't hold yourself to things you can't even, ac- there's no chance to accomplish. So we try to wean it down. Um, we did a did a nice little presentation for each kid, uh, the hitters especially when they came in for their after the fall program and gave them all the different numbers that we thought were important. And it was really interesting to me because uh, we had one kid that was fighting for a position that basically led the team in all of these special numbers that we kind of thought in our mind were the important ones. And I couldn't have told you that you know, after the games were over. So it kind of made my decision easier. So you're trying to present information to a player to make a change or emphasize something. How do you handle it just kind of from a communication and a manager standpoint, if maybe he's resistant to something or it doesn't quite click? How do you try to massage that relationship and get that those points across? We're teachers. 
You know, that that's at the, at the core of what I do is I'm a teacher. And I felt that way as a professional coach, um, whether I was the infield coordinator and trying to get a guy uh, to do his backhand different or positioning wise and trying to show him, you know, on the on the video that, you know, he's much better going this way. So we're going to play him a little to the middle because he's better going to his right. That's our job is to teach them. And you in, in this era, I think we even saw it with Nick Saban the other night. As coaches, we all have to it's a little be a little kinder and gentler with everybody and teach. And, and, you know, when I played, we just were said, do this. And we did it. And now in the era of the computer and the era of data and the era of them being able to go in a video room and looking at everything, if you're going to make a change, whether it's a swing change, whether it's positioning change, you better have some uh, video and numbers to back it up. And which is good. I think it's, yeah, it's good. You know, I grew up in the era of if a doctor said, take this pill, we took it. And now you do research on it, right? <laughs> so now you're saying players, you think now tend to, they want that reason behind everything. Oh, yeah. You know, tweak your swing like this and here's why or whatever. Right. I have three kids. And, and so I learned, I learned the hard way that you better, you know, I mean, you can be a tyrant or you can, you can be a teacher. The thing that managers, head coaches, you know, this tend to get the most public criticism for is usually in-game decisions, leaving a guy in too long, taking him out too early. Why'd you pitch on whatever it is? How do you, as a bench coach, as a manager, as a head coach, how do you use that data in-game? And how do you balance that with what you're seeing? Because there's obviously an, an eye test and experience factor that needs to come into play too. How do you use those two things and balance them together? I think it'll be harder at this level, like you guys said, because just the lack of numbers, you know, the lack of, but at the big league level, it's was really interesting to start looking at like the pitching started part of it. And, you know, first time through average, second time through average, third time through, and you know, to see what Tampa did and just said, you know, forget it after two times through you're out. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. You know, but I think that guys earn that, you know, they've obviously done this for, they have enough, enough track record that, you need to trust those numbers at times. And, you know, I, I'm AJ Hinch was great. You know, in, in Detroit, we talked a lot about this and he basically won a world series in Houston against the Dodgers by just leaving the guy in, mm -hmm. you know, Charlie Moore and just let him yeah, go. Let him go. Yep. Yeah. Um, so I think there's those times. And when you get to the playoffs, I think do change in professional baseball a little bit, but I think for the long haul, the 162, the more you trust those numbers, you're probably going to win more games and you're probably going to save the pitcher to be able to pitch longer for you in the future. Well, that's one communication question. Almost beyond data, really. Uh, a couple of your former players have praised your communication skills. What are your keys? You're dealing with a whole team of players, you know, the big leagues, you know, 20 plus guys, college, many more on that team. So what are a couple of keys just in that manager role, the communication part of handling so many different people? Yeah, I think you just need, like I said before, you need to know, you know, what buttons to push on each guy. But one thing that was really good, I thought Dave Martinez did a great job in, in um, Washington with this, was just kind of building a, a, a personal relationship with them that had nothing to do with baseball. Um, so at this level, which is great about colleges, I kind of get to know their parents better and and their families and there's and there's try to get a little common bond with them and where they're from. You know, we got a lot of kids from Arizona, of course, in California, but we also have some from the high country up there in Utah and talk about the weather. You know, just be able to sit with them at some point and not talk about baseball. And I think you get a little more trust in the end with that. Um, I've always been when I managed in Arizona, I was always really interested in in my guys' kids and, and having them in the clubhouse and having them on the field and having certain days where they could do that. Unfortunately, the two years I was there, most of those guys didn't have any kids yet. It was amazing. So that's always been something along the way, uh, which obviously 
we don't have too many of those in, in college yet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, since you mentioned Davey Martinez, I have to ask game six of the 2019 world series, Trey Turner may or may not have interfered on his run to first base. They said it was Davey Martinez was upset. This is my top memory of you, like holding him back <laughs> and he still got tossed. And then you had to manage the last couple right. uh, innings yourself. What do you remember about all that? Well, number one is I, we all kind of knew it was coming to a crescendo because obviously you're so stressed out during those games. And we felt like it wasn't a great call. I mean, by the letter of the law, was it right? Maybe so. But he, you know, where the ball is, I've always felt on that particular rule. If the catcher doesn't pick the ball up for me, it shouldn't have been, that shouldn't even be, it's like a shortstop throwing it from the hole. And the guys inside, you know what I mean? So anyway, we were so frustrated. The problem that we didn't understand at the time, guys, was that dugout is so long that our players were just wearing out the crew chief at third base. And we didn't even know it you know, because it was so loud. And so he was so upset. And when he came down and said the magic words to Davey that just threw him over the edge, I was ready. But man alive, I mean, that's a strong man and he's a big dude. And, and <laughs> I was so beat up from trying to hold him back that honestly, the, the last inning and a half or two innings I managed, I was trying to get my breath the whole time. So it was really easy. Uh, uh, that's funny. Well, it worked out well in the end for sure. Yeah. For you. Okay. So we wrap things up here with our, we call our playing favorite segment. We're asking you just for a, a handful of your favorites. So let me start very simple. What is your favorite number and why? Right. Yeah. Well, my number was here at U of A was six. And uh, so I'd say that's my favorite number. I'm not going to wear it here because uh, we have a special player who wore it last year. Should be a first round pick, Daniel Susak. So I'm going to let him wear it. But that's always been my favorite number. It was hard to get in the big leagues everywhere I went. It was retired, it seemed like. Who was your favorite baseball player when you were a kid growing up? Yeah, this is a good one. So when I was... You know, I grew up in the Bay Area in San, in Cupertino and San Jose, basically, as a, as a young kid in Moraga in high school. But I was a huge Giants fan, and I was a big Chris Spire fan. Oh, yeah. So what was great about that was when I was with the Diamondbacks, he was a AAA manager. Ah, look at that. And then he became the third base coach for Bob Brindley, so it was awesome to get to know him. Wow. I love the random the random players that we latch onto as kids. It's great. Favorite memory you have from winning the 86 NCAA title with Arizona? Yeah, I mean, I, the the best memory just was that we were not we were just good, and then the, uh, Coach Kendall just told us uh, we had a game against Grand Canyon or somebody, and he said, "Okay, guys, we're going to start a second season." And this is before stuff like this ever happened. It's big in the big leagues now, but he gave us all a T-shirt that said second season, and we won every game until we got to Omaha, and we'd lost one of the games in Omaha, but we sort of went on a run, and we sort of flipped our season around, and we beat ASU. This is probably one of my favorite memories of that season was the first inning of our game against ASU. I think it was a Friday night game. Could have been Saturday night. It was down here in Tucson. We hit around all the way where I hit second. So our leadoff hitter was Tommy Hinzo. Tommy Hinzo struck out to start the game. We hit all the way around. He struck out again. They got <laughs> number two. We hit all the way around. And our ninth hitter was Dave Rohde, our shortstop. He hit a line drive that the shortstop jumped up and caught. Or Henzo would have had three at-bats in the first <laughs> inning. Wow, that would have been something. Do <laughs> uh, you have a favorite memory aside from taking over game six uh, from the 2019 World Series? Obviously, winning the World Series was unbelievable. Just watching Juan Soto hit that home run. Uh, in game one up on the track. I never had seen in all the years I was in Oakland for years and never saw a left-handed hitter hit the ball where he hit it. I never had seen that happen. So that was kind of awesome. That was one of my favorite ones. And then after winning the parade in Washington, D.C., was it was something I'll never forget. 
And finally, you have a favorite kind of welcome to the big leagues moment that you had back when you were a kid, whether it was when you got called up or got to wherever it was first back uh, with the Twins. Well, I would have to say my first hit. Uh, I was off Billy Swift and I just, I never felt my legs. You guys, I, I, you know, I never, it was weirdest thing. I was so nervous and it took me a while because I was so respectful of major league baseball. And I loved it so much growing up that you have to get over that being in awe of everybody you're playing with, you know, with Kirby Puckett and Ken Herbeck and all these greats you've watched for all these years. And, and to get over that, that's one of the things that when it went back as a coach, tried to coach guys up about was, and I could tell there were certain guys, you'd be amazed at some of the greater players that play the game i don't necessarily think love the game as much as we do <laughs> so they're never so they have an easier time playing it because it's just no big thing to them they're so talented i wasn't that talented i just was i grinded through it but it, you have to get over that that uh, issue of of sort of putting those guys at a higher than that you should all right well coach Hale, we appreciate the stories we appreciate all the information on how you use data have and will at different levels uh so Chip Hale, head coach of the arizona wildcats baseball team thanks for joining us here on expected value thank you guys again to chip hale for joining us on the show you can follow him on twitter at ua coach hale h-a-l-e and follow arizona's account at arizona baseball i'm joined now by true media sergio de la espria who joined us last year to handle a variety of things here at true media including this podcast uh, sergio welcome to the show for the first time hello what did you take away from what coach hale said Thanks for having me paul i'm very happy to be here at true media um i think the biggest thing that i took away from what Coach Hale said, was just the similarity between access of data at the college level and at the pro ball level. Um, you would think that, you know, being college and then college, minor leagues, and then the majors, that there would be like a significant difference in just accessibility to data. But with, you know, different companies and I mean, full disclosure, us included, um, you know, data is being able to the data is being able to be accessed much easier at the collegiate level than, yeah. than I thought it would be. So. Yeah, I was surprised. That was really my top high-level takeaway, too. I was surprised. I expected, when we started getting into the college space last year, I expected it to be, the industry as a whole, to be maybe a couple, two or three more years behind where MLB is. And that's really not the case. I mean, MLB obviously has the big advantage of a lot more money. It's one organization with 30 teams that all have you know similar stadiums from an infrastructure standpoint. Uh, so the data, is of, of course, is more standardized with all the, the StatCast stuff and Hawkeye. Uh, but the co top college teams really aren't that far off. And even, you know, your mid-major type of schools, so many of them have, I mean, almost everybody has, you know, Synergy Video. A huge chunk of them have TrackMan data, which is a lot of, you know, similar data to what you get from StatCast with spin rate and pitch movement and all that stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I thought it was, it was just really cool to see everything that players and coaches have access to. Uh, Coach Hale talked about, you know, players are looking for that kind of when they're being recruited or figuring out where to play. Uh, so I, mean, I think it's a good sign. Information is, is good. People learning how to use it is good for, uh, for players, for coaches, for media, everything like that. And it, I think it means just good things for the sport going forward. I also think like the, there's the whole conversation of trying to make sure that baseball st you know, gets to a younger audience and pace of play and all that different type of stuff. Um, I think having information available to a younger generation rather than just, you know, the the MLB players that have been in the league for 10 years or so is is really big. You know, baseball players and major leaguers that the highest of levels are 
are very young. You look at someone like Juan Soto, who Coach Hale was with with, uh, with the Nationals, someone like Fernando Tatis Jr. They're young. They're using the information and the data, and they are definitely um, more, more than likely to share that information with the guys that are coming up behind them and just kind of make it the norm. So I, I think that's also another thing that can come from this younger generation of yeah. having all that data, you know? No, it's true. All these, I mean, they're almost toys in a baseball sense, you know, whether it's cool heat maps or cool ways to see what your, you know, your pitch's spin rate is or which way it's tilting or whatever it might be. It is all kind of check out the new app, check out the new website, check out the new data sort of. So there's kind of a, a, a cool new toy factor that I think is definitely at play with these college kids and all the young players, which is a good thing for yeah. everybody, I think. I also think at a on, a, on a more personal level, I loved when we talked about, um, when Coach Hale had to hold back uh, the Nationals manager <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the World Series, I was living yep. in Northern Virginia at that time. So that was a appointment watching because of the area and everyone was rallying behind the Nats. And I remember that very distinctly and going, oh, okay, this is a, an interesting moment in baseball history, I guess, in, in that game six. So it was, uh, it was nice to relive those, those, even though I'm not a Nationals fan, it was nice to relive those kind of uh, positive memories and, yeah. and, and nice baseball stuff. Yeah, I know he used to manage the D-backs. He's been a bench coach for a lot of teams, but that was my—that's my personal number one memory of him. Is mm-hmm. just trying to hold back Davey Martinez in Game Six. You know, yeah. it's not like it's a random <laughs> Tuesday in July. Right. It's Game Six of the World Series, and mm-hmm. it obviously worked out well for them. All right. Thanks, Sergio. Thanks one more time to Coach Hale for joining us on the show. Uh, We have over 40 shows available in our archives, so check those out. We talk with people from across the sports analytics world, baseball, football, soccer, basketball, and more. Uh, While you're there, we'd appreciate any ratings and reviews and any other ways you can spread the words on social media or anywhere else. You can follow us, send us feedback on Twitter at True Media Sports. That's T-R-U Media Sports. Or you can shoot us an email, expectedvalue at truemedianetworks.com. On behalf of Sergio De La Espriella and all of us here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. We'll be back in two weeks. So in the meantime, thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. 